Hi, this is Brent Skousen, youngest son of W. Cleon Skousen. Thank you for tuning in today to another lesson taught by W. Cleon Skousen on the Old Testament. Today's lecture is number 40, given in 1973 to his university class. It is unscripted and unedited. The lesson today is the book of Isaiah, chapters 1 through 55, supplemented by Dr. Skousen's book, The 4,000 Years, which can be found online, or if you prefer to listen, at audible.com. Today we cover chapters 20 and 21. Isaiah and Nephi write about America and modern times. Now sit back and join us in the classroom of W. Cleon Skousen. Enjoy! Now we have a lot of exciting material to cover this afternoon, some of which is not in your book. I want to see if I can um, catch up with the last chapter, too, that we didn't quite finish. Once you get the, um, the overall view of ancient world history in your mind, the Bible begins to make sense. Otherwise, it's extremely confusing. And you have the administration of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians, and the Greeks and the Romans all running down in a stream. And it's so important to have that as clear as possible in your mind to uh, uh, be able to put some of the books of the Bible together, especially the prophetic ones. Now, you remember that Hezekiah, whose ministry was a righteous one, following that of his wicked uh, father Ahaz, was succeeded by an equally wicked person, Manasseh. We, we understand that Isaiah was caught in between the vortex of that, um, that man's terrible administration, and it was he who killed him. Before that happens, though, let me just mention two important things in the life of Hezekiah before he died. <clears throat> right at the time that Lachish was under siege and the, the Assyrians were just coming uh, right up from the plains of Sharon down along the Philistine coast, Hezekiah fell very, fell very ill and uh, it looked like he might die. So he sent for the prophet Isaiah to see what the word of the Lord was. If he was to die, then he would be reconciled, apparently. That was the idea. If not, then he would just uh, sweat it out and come up on the other side and get on with things. It would make a tremendous difference if he died now. <clears throat> and so Isaiah came and said what? Put your house in order. It's time. And after he was gone, Hezekiah, who really had tried to live a good life, turned toward the wall and just wept and talked to God, as we do when we're in the most desperate circumstances. We don't care when anybody's listening or not. We just want to talk to our Heavenly Father. And, and it's in these times of extremity when there's just you and God. I mean, you're going home. Man, it's up to him. So he just talked to him. He said, I tried to do everything I could. I, I wanted to do right. How can you take me at this time when they need me so desperately? Everything is in jeopardy. So here's Isaiah walking across. He's kind of like Samuel, you know. He does his duty. Go tell him he's going to die. I did. Okay. Now the Lord says, now go back. All right, go back. So he goes back. What do you want me to tell him? Tell him he has 15 more years. Oh, all right. Tell him he has 15 more years. So he did. He told him to have 15 more years. Did Hezekiah believe him? How can this be? You sure you're not just trying to make me feel good in my last hours? Well, Isaiah said... The word of God is in it. What would you have as a sign? 
as a token of God's affirmation, that you can depend upon this, you can rely upon it. Well, he said, um, how about the sundial? It would be nothing to turn it ahead, Ten, at least it wouldn't be very much, turn it ahead a little bit, you know, speed the earth up. Would God turn it back for me? And did he? Yeah, one of the great miracles of the Bible. Now, it'll be interesting to know how he did it. The Book of Mormon rather suggests that he literally, he literally turned it back. Uh, it would be relatively easy just to bend the rays of light to turn it back. But this astronomical phenomenon of stopping the earth, turning it again or reversing it, and having it stay in its orbit is astronomically impossible. But all things are possible unto God. And he can sustain the earth there, twist it, turn it, shove it around, take it back to Kolob, push it back out in the galaxy, do it faster than the speed of light. He really is a superintelligence. This personality we, work, we worship, that's what he is. He is a superintelligence. And we love him and admire him. He is our father. That's whom we worship. And that's who did this. And he knows how. And when we're taught, we'll know how. So uh, <clears throat> he was given 15 more years to live. And you remember that um, these Assyrians had come up and had originally said to Hezekiah, now we won't attack if you'll pay us off because we're coming for loot anyway. So he went and hacked the gold off of the pillars of the temple and everything else. He got every single piece of specie uh, metal he could get from among the people. It was a tremendous treasure. Sent it to, Hezekiah, sent it to the king of the Assyrians. And then the king of the Assyrians said, okay, we got that. Now we'll, we'll turn him out. And I really would like to take these, um, these Jews and uh, ship them over to Babylon. We got some slave labor camps, so I'd like to put them in, in, into not Babylon, but Assyria. And we took all the rest of their people from up north. We'll take, these, we'll take the Jews too. That was really his plan. He was going to enslave this people. And so he sent his embassy over to try and get an insurrection going to put the people in confrontation against their government and the king. And so um, the representatives of the king, they stood high up on the wall, you see, so that so they, they could kind of negotiate. A lot of people were standing around listening, naturally. So these negotiators, when they began hearing these men cry out against the king and what a poor king he was and how weak he was and everything, they asked the negotiators to talk in what language? Aramaic or Syrian. They say, we understand that. Um, <clears throat> don't, don't alarm our people. They said, we intend to alarm the people. We'll talk in any language we want to. We're going to talk in Hebrew. So they'll all understand it. Down with the king. So um, Hezekiah was comforted and told that the whole Assyrian army would be destroyed with a blast. What did it turn out to be? It was really a blast. You hear a lot of young people now talking about a blast. Well, they, here was a blast. What, a, what apparently was it? It looked like it was an overnight 24-hour plague. This wasn't Hong Kong flu. This was uh, Israeli flu. <laughs> How many did it take? How many were killed? Overnight. 185,000. And when Sennacherib got up the next morning and found out, it says they woke up and found they were dead, <clears throat> meaning that those who survived woke up and found they were dead. Uh, <clears throat> They just abandoned everything. They didn't dare go near the bodies. They just took off for Assyria. Abandoned the campaign against Egypt. This is one of the great events in history. 
And secular history demonstrates that for some unknown reason, he all of a sudden pulled up stakes and went back home. And he was uh, praying before one of his gods, and two of his sons crept in behind him and killed him on the spot. And then they fled to Armenia, and a third son became the new king of Assyria. But they didn't come down and bother, bother Judah right away. Now, what, uh, when they left the camp thinking that the plague was going to kill all of them, what did they leave besides the dead bodies? Gold. All of a sudden, Hezekiah is one of the richest rulers that you could have because these people always bring their gold with them into the field of battle. Why? So they'll fight harder. And when they abandon camp, you have really come off with a jackpot. Where'd that word come from? Anyway, they come off uh, with all the loot. So um, these details are not given in the Bible. All we know is that the next time we run into Hezekiah, he is loaded with, with gold and silver and precious things. And it's assumed that's where he got it. Now, um, he had visitors. Who comes to visit him? Babylonians who already have their eye on Assyria and within a century will have beaten them. In the famous battle of Carchemish in 605, they will completely destroy Assyria and her ally Egypt because Egypt goes up and joins them. And uh, then they'll scoop down and hit Jerusalem and take off a lot of this wealth and they will also take all of the gold vessels and so forth from the temple and they'll pick up four young fellows that look like rather promising young Jews, late teenagers, whom all of you know. What were their names? Daniel, Madshak, Mad <laughs> Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego, <clears throat> like the song says. All right, now that's, that's what actually happened. In anticipation of that, the Lord spoke to Isaiah. And when the king was boasting to Isaiah about the, how the Babylonians had come, and they were very impressed with what Hezekiah showed them. Isaiah said, what did you show them? I took them on a full cook's tour of the treasury so they could see how rich we were. Isaiah said, that's too bad. They'll never forget it. And this kingdom will be overthrown. Oh, no, not bad news again. Yes, bad news. Babylon will take over this kingdom now. They'll never forget what you showed them this day. Uh, but... Uh, Hezekiah, since you have been such a good king, the Lord says, it won't happen to you. It'll happen to one of your descendants. So Hezekiah said, well, we might just as well go forward and do the best we can then while, while we survive. Well, he sort of did, and that's why it was postponed to another generation, his descendants. Actually, it was in the computer. The, um, Actually, Judah was much better off. She would have done just fine under Babylon because uh, the Lord set it all up where the prime minister of Babylon was whom? Daniel. Who are the three um, uh, mayors of the city of Babylon? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The Lord really had it set up for them. They had a good deal going. And they were too weak, really, to have resisted other powers. So in anticipation of that, the Lord had it all set up to move them right in. Then Zedekiah, their king, was wicked and wouldn't listen to Jeremiah. And they really got scalded as a result. Were destroyed in 587 B.C. That was Isaiah's last appearance in history. And we have to go to uh, uh, post-apostolic writings 
for the traditional death of Isaiah. It says that Isaiah was sawed in two with a wooden saw. And um, we assume that it was Manasseh that did it. Manasseh hated the prophets of God. But that's an assumption on our part. But it does say that according to the Christians, and that's the only documentary we have, according to the Christian fathers, Isaiah was sawed in two by a wooden saw. So that's how his ministry ends. We remind ourselves that in his writings, uh, over 60 chapters, we have not only about the fall of Israel, but also the attack on Judah, the ultimate fall of Judah, but under Babylonian domination, not under Assyria. We have prophecy concerning the fall of Assyria, conquered by Babylon. We have prophecies in Isaiah concerning the fall of Babylon, conquered by Persia. We have in prophecy the fall of Persia, conquered by nations that would scatter the Jews for the last time. And they would remain scattered until the latter days when they would be gathered. So this prophet Isaiah, he is just tremendous. And what I tried to do in the Book of Mormon commentary <clears throat> was to take each verse apart, which I would have done in here, but I looked at the number of pages and I thought, no, I won't impose that on the class. That would have been about five more chapters, you see. So out of uh, <clears throat> sympathy and love, I condensed it down into just uh, paragraphs describing the prophecies of, about each one. I categorized it. Uh, so he knew all about the fall of Babylon, the fall of Persia, and, and the coming forth in the latter days. He was just loaded. He knew all about what would happen to Egypt, to Moab, to Phoenicia, Tyre and Sidon and Syria. He knew all about them. What a great prophet. So when Christ said, study Isaiah... He meant study world history and know how I did fulfill literally every prophecy that Isaiah gave. Now we come to Isaiah of the latter days because it was so terrible in his own day and being a poet, his um, sensitive nature would constantly draw him to our day. But he warned us about things in our time too. He is really very hard to understand. If you don't know what he's talking about in advance, you can scarcely... Uh, pick it out of his scripture. He's writing poetically to begin with. He's using double talk, uh, which requires a key in other places. He's, be, he's required by the Lord to be obscure in some places. So it's, it's, he's difficult to read. And so the people complained to Nephi. They said, you quote all this 48, 49 of Isaiah to us. And now we got on going on 51 and 52. Now you're starting in with chapter 2. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight. What was Nephi trying to do when he quoted all those passages? Any of you know what he had in mind? He was trying to tell you how it all comes out, which God didn't allow him to tell. We're quite confident now that the reason he jammed all of Isaiah in there was to give him a basis for explaining to his descendants what Isaiah saw and what would come, what would be the outcome in the United States in the latter days. All of those chapters lead up to the second coming. Always the second coming. Always the second coming. And right through the period we're now passing. Now he saw that in vision. And he was recording it away, just doing fine. And the Lord had said, and the angel that the Lord sent said, Look. And he looked and there was a man in white. The angel said, now that's John. He'll come in about 600 years. He'll be a disciple of the Savior. 
He's going to write all of these things that you're now going to see. So you just look, don't write. So Nephi saw how it all comes out. And the Lord said, don't you write down what you see. All right. Then he gets into the brass plates after he gets over to America. See, that happened when he was only 16, about. Right after they left Jerusalem, he saw that. He saw the whole history of the Western Hemisphere right after the Second Coming. He gets over into America and he starts studying the brass plates. Isaiah saw it. Same revelation. And um, he wrote it. You get up into 50, Isaiah 52. You're passing right through 1973. So he writes it down. And he starts to explain it. He said, I'll tell you what happened. <laughs> and he's just going along great right there in chapter 26 and 27, Second Nephi. And he's 28, 29. He's just going great guns. And he gets up to about 1973 to 1976 and right in there. And guess what happened? And the Lord said, that's all. Write anymore. Don't tell. I don't want them to know how it comes out. So you can just tell. This is what has led us as Book of Mormon students to to. Uh, this is why we think he jammed in so much of Isaiah, because he saw the same vision, was not allowed to tell what he saw, so he thought he'd tell what Isaiah saw. And we conclude that fact, for, for he went right up to the point and the Lord stopped him exactly the same place. And so we could see where he was going and what he was going to do with it. Because we all wondered why he jammed Isaiah in there. He's so much easier to read than Isaiah. We think that's the reason. All right. <clears throat> in, here he is only 16 and he gives us the history of America. And uh, between he and Father Lehi and Isaiah, we get a lot of details, prophetic details that have already been fulfilled. And prophetic details are just out in front of us. Personally, I'm very glad that he did not tell us how it all comes out. Uh, knowing my own nature and a little bit about your nature, it's a good thing he didn't tell us. The Lord has now hanging up here in front of us the sword of Democles, which is hanging over the United States of America and all the other Gentile nations in South America and Canada and elsewhere. And the Lord says, I... I'm going to give you a chance to help my children and be a blessing. And if you don't go into Christ and try to prevent me from using this as my headquarters for my work to prepare the world, if you don't do that, if you remain righteous, don't go into Christ, I'll bless you. And you'll help build a new Jerusalem. But if you ever turn against my work and force my missionaries out from among you, you'll be purged from the face of this land until you'll be like the Nephites, and the Jaredites, you will be remembered no more. And the saints themselves will barely escape. And my remnant of Jacob, which would be the Lamanite nations, will come up and go through the Gentiles during their period of distress, which will be civil war and revolution, and will thresh you to the point where you will be just torn apart as a lion tears the sheep. And that's what's hanging over America. Now both Isaiah and Nephi saw this. So that's right where we are. Now, when the Book of Mormon came out and said that the United States would become the most powerful, that a great Gentile nation would rise up, which would establish liberty. And this was the first free people in modern times. First free people. And then Canada later. And then came uh, all the South and Central American countries who were still fighting for uh, their freedom in a way. But beginning in 1805, all the Latin American countries struck for freedom. 
but the first free people in modern times was this great Gentile nation that uh, the Book of Mormon talks about. And as a preliminary, Lehi was told that America would be kept hidden. Now, actually, America was discovered many times, uh, dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Maybe it would be hundreds of times if we only knew. The Asiatics got over here. The Vikings got over here. The Phoenicians got over here. Uh, we don't know how many other people. And many of them left their mark. Now, right at the time that uh, Nephi was coming in on the west coast of South America, here were Phoenicians landing on the east coast of South America in Brazil. And they got blown away from a group of ships that were going all the way around Africa. Egypt had done the same thing. They both went all the way around Africa, 600 B.C. And this one ship got blown off, and, of course, Brazil projects way out into the Atlantic. And so they were blown over onto the Brazilian seaboard. And they wrote on a stone who they were. They were lost. Don't know what's going to happen to them. Going to try and get back now. And that's the end of that. The stone was discovered 100 years ago, and a Brazilian curator uh, copied off very carefully the characters. And, of course, at that time, nobody could read them. Didn't know what they said. And so they were a copy of the copy was sent on up to Phoenician scholars, and they interpreted it. Then everybody laughed at it and said it wasn't authentic. Somebody was making stories. So the stone got lost. And then just a few years ago in a, an auction sale in New Jersey, this curator's notebook came up for auction with some other books. And the Brandeis University bought it, deciphered them all over again and found that the Phoenician characters were unique for 600 BC, that it was undoubtedly an authentic document, and at this time nobody did not doubts it, and last month's Reader's Digest had a big article about it. You got to see it. Yeah, they said that they had been sent by King Hiram. Yes. Yes, he was, two, he was 1000 BC, another King Hiram. It was a very popular name among Phoenicians. None of these people that discovered America, the Phoenicians, the Vikings, the Asians, none of them brought a great population over here. The land was literally hidden from the mother Gentile nations until 1492. And then um, Nephi saw Columbus. Now he saw all of this in vision. He actually saw Columbus. And he actually saw these events occur. He wasn't just told about it. He got to see a lot of them. That's how thoroughly prepared the, the computer is that they work on over there on the other side. It's, it's just thrilling to contemplate what it is. Our minds are just beginning to comprehend how literal things can be anticipated. If you knew every single factor that was entering into a particular thing that was about to occur, you could describe it. You could anticipate it. You could, there's no facet of it that you wouldn't be able to describe, right? Just like if you know the DNA... In the genetic process, you can tell whether it be blonde or brunette or red hair or bald. Uh, you know whether or not uh, blue eyes, brown eyes. Uh, uh, you know you can all. It's all it locked in there. Now it's, that's not only true in the DNA. That's also true in in the over there. Now people say then then you mean everything is um, predestined after all? No, it's pre-planned. But none of it is done in violation of free agency. Predestination means. No matter what, you couldn't help it. No, it's just in anticipation of how we'll use our free agency. Now, our Heavenly Father knows us well, as I know my own children. I can put candy out on the table, or I could when they were little, and say, now, don't anybody touch that before dinner. 
and I could tell you in advance who would snitch. <laughs> Got a couple of them with sweet tooths, and they would do it very quietly so as not to make Dad feel bad or for them to hurt. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, and others, it, it wouldn't matter whether it was uh, spread out on the table. If I said don't take it before dinner, they didn't take it before dinner. Our Heavenly Father knows us that well. He knows what we'll do under given circumstances. Now, Nephi saw that Columbus would be under the influence of the Holy Ghost, and Columbus knew it. Now, before we're through, we may find a lot of factors in the lives of some of these early men, such as George Washington, Columbus, and others, that actually involved uh, spiritual manifestations that they did not record. Uh, all that we know is that Columbus absolutely knew that he could not fail. And when he comes into Ferdinand and Isabella, look at the boldness with which he speaks. I come to you as the ambassador of the Holy Ghost. I cannot fail, and I give you the opportunity to support me in this great adventure in which I will cross the seas and reach the land for the first time in history. So they began to have a big dispute as to whether or not it was possible to reach the land. The Greeks, about 100 B.C., figured out how big around the earth was. Nobody believed that the earth was flat. That's a myth. Everybody knew the earth was round. They knew about how round it was. 20 to 24,000 miles. You see, they were right on. If it's that big, he cannot reach it. Food will go bad and water rancid. He'll never make it. So the big argument was not whether the earth was flat, but how big around was the earth. And there isn't a single textbook in the state of Utah, but what has the myth in it. And that's true of every textbook in the United States except the very latest history books that are aware of Dr. Morrison's uh, profound research into all the universities of Europe of that period in which they were all teaching natural geography and were all teaching it on a globe. They weren't teaching it about it being flat, but Washington Irving, our famous historian, put that in about this big argument and it's a very uh, oh, um, eloquent debate. It's, uh, Columbus argues how ships go down out of sight, and that proves that the earth is round, etc. Several sailors have been watching that for centuries. Was anything new about that? How many of you knew about that before? Good. When we had Book of Mormon? Good. Um, so Dr. Morrison put it in his, um, um, in his text, and I put it in Volume 1 of the um, Hidden Treasures of the Book of Mormon in order to get it into our LDS literature. It might have gotten into some other books, but I haven't seen any. No, he just thought he was going to J Japan. He was headed for Japan. Fine. Well, it's gradually getting out. And uh, uh, when I first ran across Dr. Morrison's work, so about 1958, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. You mean uh, no flat earth theory? No, there wasn't any. That's a myth. Well, anyway, we've got it out now, and it's getting into church channels, and that's where it belongs. Now I want to tell you just a little bit about Columbus. First of all, he knew he was led by the Holy Ghost. He said, I cannot fail. Let me show you how much he was led by the Holy Ghost. Columbus could not leave from uh, the port of Cadiz because all of the Moors and Jews were being evacuated. In 1492, the very famous Battle of Granada had just been fought. And Ferdinand and Isabel had succeeded in driving all the Arabs, called Moors, out of Spain. And they had invited in the Japanese, excuse me, the, uh, the Jews to be with them. Get the Japanese in a minute. Uh, and uh, so they were all at Cadiz, and so he had to sail from up here. Uh, 
Dr. Morrison found out, and that's Morrison with, a, with one R, by the way, uh, he found out that the Portuguese had been trying to reach Chipango, which is Japan, for uh, nearly, uh, well, many, many years, and that they had been sailing to the west, but all the winds blew to the east at that level. So they have to tack. They drive the ships this way, this way, this way. And it looked like they had gotten to about here three or four times and then turned back. Now Columbus, he studied Marco Polo, who had been to China. Marco Polo said, I think about 1,500 miles off the coast, and it isn't that far at all, but he thought it was, there is Chipungo, that's spelled with a C. But in Italian, so it's been changed to J for us, Japan, Japan. And so the idea was, for Columbus, was to find out at what level Japan was, because that would be closer to it than China. So he was headed for Japan. And he thought that uh, if he got down to about where the Canary Islands were, if he got down to the Canary Islands, and then he sailed, he'd go right over and, and hit Chipungo. Now, fortunately, as Dr. Morrison discovered, he arrived here. I should explain to you, Dr. Morrison built a ship exactly like Columbus's flagship, made this trip in exactly the same days, traveled exactly at the same rate, and went through as nearly as he could the same experiences. And his book, uh, Admiral of the Ocean Seas, is the classic on Columbus. It was in two volumes, now out condensed into one, with all the technical material left out. Uh, mathematical, navigational material. Alright, now he got down to Canary Islands and was um, going to sail. One of his rudders broke and the widow of the governor of the Canary Islands liked Columbus. And so she entertained him for two weeks with his crew. And Dr. Morrison found that that was a great blessing. Because if Columbus had continued on his journey, he would have been drowned in the hurricanes that strike that section of the Atlantic every year at that season. He waited two weeks, the hurricane season passed, and he went to America on his fastest trip. The most favorable possible winds as he sailed from here and sailed right through to the Bahamas, came out here, and when he saw that first little island, he called it San Salvador, the Savior. The Savior. And they, he went, they went ashore and they found these innocent natives all stark naked and so forth, welcoming them, glad to see them and so forth. Certainly got a big ship, etc. And uh, uh, they couldn't talk, naturally, but it didn't take them long to begin teaching them nouns and verbs. They especially want to teach them what's gold. And uh, so they started trading a few beads for the gold. And they found them sleeping in hammocks, which the sailors immediately tried out. All of them are sleeping on hard decks. And ever since then, all of the sailors of the world have been sleeping in hammocks, first discovered by Columbus and his crew on their first trip. Uh, the natives said, we don't have much of this. A little, not much. It's down on the big island. The big island... Right down here. What were they talking about? Talking about Cuba. So Columbus went down to Cuba. Have we covered this before in this class? And um, they got down to Cuba, but there wasn't much gold. And so um, they said it's on the next island. That's the Columbus got used to this. Well, the next island that's over is um, Haiti or uh, Dominican Republic. And Dr. Morrison said that while they were at Cuba, they did discover one interesting thing. They would take leaves and roll them up in real real tight bundles. Then they'd put them on the fire and get them going. Then they'd stuff up one nostril and shove it up the other nostril and puff away. 
First Havana cigar. <laughs> it was tobacco. And that's the way they smoked it up the nostril. Puffed away. Well, they got over here, and Dr. Morrison said, as they reached this island, and the natives came out to greet them, they noticed down among them two white girls. Columbus was blonde, reddish hair until he was 30, and then it all turned prematurely gray. His skin was very light, he was freckled. And he says in his notes, they were as light as he was, except for the fact that they'd been exposed to the sun. So they immediately worked through their translators that are getting pretty good now, and said, what about the two white girls? Somebody been here in advance? And they said, uh, many, many white, many people. Down, two days, down. So they sailed around here until they came to this point here, which is near where Columbus lost one of his ships that was wrecked. And uh, there they found about 500 white Indians. All came out to greet them. And uh, they would not, uh, they didn't intermarry. Uh, the other Indians would not intermarry with the whites, and the whites wouldn't intermarry. They just, it was just one of those things. They had kind of a, what did they call them? Uh, and it was a taboo. Uh, they had to stay within their tribe. So they had remained a, a, a Nephite, uh, little Nephite pocket all these years. Now, there was an ethnological find. There was a real treasure. Well, Columbus, um, unfortunately, brought with him on his second trip the conquistadores. Now, these were they who are, who are believed to have killed upwards of 25 million Indians. 25 million. They just slaughtered them everywhere. And Nephi saw it in vision. Father Lehi saw it in vision. The Savior talked about it. Uh, what would happen? They would be driven by Cortez and Pizarro, and they were. And uh, so all those people, there were 300,000 Indians on that island, they were all killed within 15 years. And they had to import Negroes from the Canary Islands and captured the Caribs, Caribbean Indians, uh, who were cannibals, and bring them in here, under close guard, no doubt. And uh, they worked the sugar uh, plantations. Now, what a loss that was. Now you must understand something about the, um, the Spanish uh, mind at this time. Uh, they were the victims of the Dark Ages. See, all our ancestors were Catholic. And it was Catholic priests who started the Reformation inside and outside the church that finally brought the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the foundation of the Restoration. In fact, Erasmus and some of the great Catholic scholars, we owe a great deal to them. Uh, one of the doctrines of the Dark Ages was that if you can't convert a person from idolatry, then kill him and baptize him just as he goes down. And it would save your soul. At least it would save your soul. And it was sort of in a spirit of uh, uh, missionary zeal. You kill them and give them the sprinkling cross, you see, just as they're dying, and it saves their souls. Of course, it was an erroneous doctrine. But that was what was back of a lot of this killing. They would try to convert them to Christianity. Impossible. Uh, Cortez would kill as many as 2,000 captive Indians on a weekend as sacrifices to their gods. The Caribs would take little children and fatten them up for eating, just like they would pigs or anything else. And so the Catholic fathers, the priests, were horrified with what some of the conquistadores did in killing them so ruthlessly. But nevertheless, they said, well, at least we've saved their souls. Or we did give them the sprinkling and the cross before they died. 
I said in my class this morning, last rites, because that's what my, one of my texts says. They would administer last rites just before they died. And when my Catholic students came up and said, no, just the baptism, that's all they administer, not last rites. Just the baptism. So that's the rationale behind the killing of so many Indians. And we only estimate uh, the number that they killed. Now, when Columbus was ready to go home, he was going to go home this way. What's wrong with that? He's, he's going to do the same things the Portuguese have been doing. He's going to have to attack all the way back. In fact, his sailors almost mutinied because they said, look, we're going too fast. This is just too good a wind. We won't be able to go home if we decide to go back. Well, Columbus said, we're not going back. Yeah, but uh, just in case. We're going too fast. So he's going to attack, and he intended to, to attack, as they call it, Back all the way to the Canary Islands. Dr. Morrison said, in his estimation, this was the finest navigator alive in his day. And he describes how he navigated. And he almost had an instinct for it. He had a, a rope going, a string going out through the back of the boat. He'd watch the knots go by. That tells him how fast it's going. This is how he'd figure how far he'd gone. He had an hourglass and turned that upside down to tell the time. And then he sights in on the sun or stars or whatever. And out of these very crude devices he would arrive where he wanted to go. I'll tell you when he'd get there. He's all ready to sail. He sails up here just a little ways and makes a catastrophic error. Probably the only navigational error he made at any time while he was an admiral. Where do you think he headed? For Iceland. He was headed right toward Iceland. He went right up here. He got right here and he said, you know, I made a mistake. We're going the wrong direction. Where is he now? right where he needs to be, and he sailed back at hurricane speed right into the Azor Islands. Hit him right head on. In fact, they had him. They were trying to arrest all of them because they didn't think he'd been anywhere. And uh, but finally he went in and told the, the king of the Portuguese that had already turned him down and wouldn't support his mission. Well, we got it. Want to see a little of the gold we brought back? And uh, we got a few of the natives. Yeah, we made it. We made it. Oh, the king is chewing his nails. Because he could have had a chance, he could have sponsored it. Then he went around and reported it to the king of Spain. Now, he had to march his Indians across country. Then he marched them across back here because he promised, they almost drowned here. And he promised the Lord that if he could save his life, he would go to three or four certain churches and make, make his oblations, etc. So he fulfilled that vow when he got back. And all the way, he'd have these Indians in their native dress proudly walk along the highways and and, uh, of course, people crowd along. Columbus is coming. and See the Columbus caravan, all these curiosities. And two of the young fellows that watched them pass became very famous in America. One was Cortez, and the other was Pizarro. And, and after they saw Columbus pass, they resolved that one day they would go to America. And they did. They came to Hispaniola. And then Cortez went to, uh, to Cuba. And then on over to the Yucatan, and then he conquered Montezuma. Right after that, Pizarro went down and conquered the Incas. And both of them were successful because the Indians were expecting a fair god to come in and take over anyway. In this chapter, we were told that Nephi knew all about the Revolutionary War. He knew who would win it. And I just want to say this in closing. Now we have two minutes. To just These are two precious minutes. There is a lot of American history that we have not studied and that we owe it to our Heavenly Father to dig out and share with our children and one another. That's very faith-promoting. 
that has been lost. And I've just given you one nugget there on page 582 of an occasion in, in, uh, in 1746 when France sent over the biggest armada in the history of the Western Hemisphere to burn down Boston and New York and Charleston and capture the West Indies. John Adams says as a little 10-year-old boy, he was standing there by the fireplace and he watched the neighbors gather and they tried to get his father to leave Boston and go to the Great Lakes. And he heard his father say, my grandfather fought the French. My father fought the French. And when the French arrive in Boston, I'll be there on Boston Common. And so none of them left. They all stayed. Uh, they ordered a fasting and prayer. And I put in here in the old South Meeting House, every time I go there, if I take a tour there, I always read this to them. And at the end of their fast, and here's a prayer that lasted one hour. As the minister said, now deliver us, O God, from our enemy. Send thy tempest lords upon the waters to the eastward. Raise thy right hand. Scatter the ships of our tormentors and drive them hence. Sink their proud frigates beneath the power of thy winds. All of a sudden a dark cloud came over Boston. A terrible wind accompanied it. So heavy that it blew that huge bell up in the belfry. And the minister paused and then he said, We hear thy voice, O Lord. We hear it. Thy breath is upon the waters to the eastward, even upon the deep. Thy bell tolls for the death of our enemies. And then he bowed, and his tears were just streaming down as his face as he said, Thine be the glory, Lord. Thine be the glory. Amen and amen. Only a thousand men survived out of that, that fleet. They had two thousand immediately killed. All their main ships were destroyed. The, the two men that were at the head of it, uh, it was so disastrous, they both committed suicide. And the whole history of the United States would have been changed if Boston and, had been burned and New York had been burned, Charleston had been burned, been altogether different. So Nephi said the hand of the Lord was over these Gentiles who fled from the mother Gentiles so that no, none of the mother Gentiles were ever afterwards able to overcome them. You who are history majors, dig that out and share it with the saints. The early history of this country is loaded with things like that that have been authentically recorded. All right?